are listening to Pastor Ben Eckel of Calvary Chapel, Keweenaw Peninsula, in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Tune in each week as Pastor Ben teaches through the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Or watch us live on Sunday mornings at 11.30 a.m. Eastern Time on our Facebook page. You can access our library of teachings at www.ccqanon.com. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we ask that you bless your word, Lord, that it takes root in our heart to um, just create us in the image of your son. And so, Father... um, it's a love letter you wrote to us, and sometimes the most loving thing is to give us warnings, and this is a book of warnings, and we need to take heed and learn from their examples, but we also get to see how gracious and loving and kind you are in the midst of our failure. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to see a part of Israel's history that is their lowest point, right? Uh where the education tends to begin, right? When you're at rock bottom, we'll, we'll get to that. Anyone here le- learn from failure? Well, what's the term where you hit your head against the wall and stop just to see how good it feels? <laughs> you ever do that? You're thinking about it and catching you over there. But uh, We'll jump in. Are we song checked, Aaron? Are we good? Like zero sound? Okay. Is your... Is your- All right. We good? Check, check. All right, we're good. All right. So let's jump right in here. Second Kings chapter 13, verse 1. It says, In the 23rd year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoaz, the son of Jehu, became king over Israel and Samaria and reigned 17 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, who had made Israel sin. He did not depart from them. So you see there's this continuation of idolatry, the golden calf worship. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he delivered them into the hand of Haziel, king of Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazel, all their days. So, God needs to get their attention. You know, he's been very patient, very long-suffering with the northern kingdom. They're completely given over to idolatry at this point. Remember, although Ahab's gone and and, uh, the worship of Baal was gone, they never quite dealt with the uh, religion of of, uh, Jehor, excuse me, um, uh, what's his name here? I can't think of it. Jeroboam. And Jeroboam didn't introduce a new religion. He created a pseudo-hybrid form of obedience, right? It's, it's, it's seeker-friendly church. Oh, we don't need to go all the way to the temple to worship God. We can just do it right here at the golden calf, right? The golden calf was not a new God. It was their understanding of who they thought Jehovah God is, right? Think of a country that that's rampant in, Right? We can worship our own understanding of God and completely miss the mark because it kind of looks the part. It kind of it is close. It's good enough religion, right? And it's convenient. That's the problem with that kind of religion. It's convenient. It has no cost, right? And we know that anything that doesn't cost you and I anything is worth nothing, okay? And so to God, he's finding that this is worthless. They've not made God a priority, And in his love and in his grace and in his mercy, he does what he needs to do to get their attention as he raises up an enemy, two enemies, right? He's harassing them going, hey, you guys got to do some personal inventory here, right? The way of the transgressor is hard as the Proverbs tell us, right? Sometimes as a Christian, you can be going through hard seasons in your life because you're living in compromise and you're living in disobedience, you've, you've, you've not stayed within your first love. And, and God will not let you have peace. He will not let you have contentment outside of his perfect will for your life. And the world has called it everything, right? Oh, it's depression. It's anxiety. It's this. It's that. It's 
some ism or ology and, you know, let's just take a pill or, and God's saying, hey, you know what? There's a check engine light here. It's called your enemies are knocking at your door. Well, look at what Jehoaz does here. He pleaded with the Lord in verse four, and the Lord listened to him. For he saw the oppression of Israel because the king of Syria oppressed them. Now we know from all the way back a few chapters, 2 Kings 10.30. Let me just read it real quick. It says here, And the Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in doing what is right in my sight, and have done it to the house of Ahab, all that was in my heart, your sons shall sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. So God was right. This is a continuation. He said, look, just because Jehu here did a good job, we're going to bless you for four generations. And this happens to be the fourth generation. But what we're seeing here is we have Jehoaz here. He is evil in the sight of the Lord. Rather, his actions are evil in the sight. He's an ungodly man. But this ungodly man gets desperate. And what does he do? He pleads with the Lord, right? God is faithful even when you and I are faithless. God will still hearken under the voice of our cry, right? I mean, God does hear the voices of sinners. I mean, think of how you and I got saved. Were you studying your Bible? Were you pouring your heart into learning about God? No, I was at the beer cooler at the family Christmas party, you know, trying to drink myself to death. And then I just called out to God and God's like, you know, he looks for the heart, doesn't he? God will hear the voice of our cry, but it depends. He knows our heart. He knows our motive. He doesn't want to just get us into a relationship of a get out of hell free card. Some of us only pray when things get bad, right? And sometimes God knows in his love, he has to take away the things that um, we think are strong to us. Sometimes our health. Sometimes he's got to take away our fortune. He's got to take away a, a loved one from us because he knows it's going to create something in us, a prayer of desperation. Those rock bottom moments are clarifiers, aren't they? Right? How many desperate prayers are coming out of jail cells and hospital beds, right? That's sometimes a great place where God has to, to prick our hearts. God will always listen to a repentant heart. And we get so caught up into how we pray and what words we pray. I, I think of Peter. Lord, call me out. I want to walk on the water too. Okay, Pete, why don't you do it? Peter's out there. Yeah, look what I'm doing. The storm comes up and then he starts to sink. And then what does he say? <coughs> you know, in the best King James English, he pulls out some, you know, reformed, um, thesis no he says save me <laughs> lord help you know i mean those are great prayers you know you call on the name of the lord and he will save he is quicker to save and to deliver than we are to cry out to him have you ever noticed that have you ever exhausted all your resources trying to fix your own problem and answer your own prayers i mean what do they say about the average person spends two-thirds of their their fortune in the last third of their life, trying to take care of the health issues that come with being old. They need to prolong their life. You know, there, there's one king, King Asa, I believe. Remember, he was diseased in his feet. And he did everything but what? Seek the Lord as to how to be healed. You know, we turn to the arm of the flesh rather than right to God. And so this man's learning a, a hard lesson, but it's a valuable lesson. Okay. God's going to listen to a repentant heart. However, God does not turn a blind eye to our sin. He doesn't just sweep it under the mat. He, you know, we learned this on Wednesday in our in our um, our Bible study where you know God hides the sin or He removes the sin. He still has it. It's just hidden, and He deals with our sin appropriately and accordingly. What what if God were to deal with all of our sin all at once? How overwhelming would that be? What if God every morning would put all of our sins on the big screen TV as we came in, you know, like it would be overwhelming. He deals with us with, you know, you know, you start off 
in the Lord and you stop drinking and using drugs and, you know, messing around with, you know, things like that. But then as the Lord starts to deep clean, what does he go after? Pride, right? He goes after the insubordination. He goes after all these sins of the heart, these things that really prevent you from experiencing what God has. But notice the Lord did see the oppressor. He knew what their real problem was. And he's going to take care of it, right? You ever find like when you're praying to God and you're asking him for deliverance and he's, you're asking and beseeching and you're doing whatever you got to do, you're crossing yourself, holy water, trying to invoke the power of God, and you want one prayer to be answered, but God's saying, no, this is the real issue. What's the real issue in our life? Sin, right? It's, it's, not, it's not the late water bill or it's not the fact we don't have any money or this or that. It really comes down to we're missing the mark. But what's the one sin that God will not forgive. That's rejecting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Once you get that out of the way, once you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then all the other stuff's cake, right? The hardest thing God can do for you is to bring you to heaven for eternity. You know, once that's done, everything else is, is, is all just symptoms of a greater cause. So as this king, his prayers are getting serious, there's a clarifying effect in his life. You know, oftentimes, you know, what the world would call this is a nervous breakdown. Anyone have a nervous breakdown? Oh, they're good for the soul, right? The, uh, there's a, a book. It's called Competent to Counsel. We have it on the bookshelf by a, a Christian nuthetic counselor named Jay Adams. And what he calls it is a crack up. It's where you get to the end of yourself, Right? Where you just you you realize you just lost control and you just turn into a puddle of mud, and as ministers, this is what we look for in our friends and family, right? Often you've heard me say, part of ministry is you just get a lawn chair, one of those nice Coleman folding ones, they're real easy to carry on, and you just park it next to your friends and family who are running from Jesus, and you just sit there and you just watch and you wait, because it's not going to get better for them. Have you do you have any friends or family in rebellion to Jesus that are like, hey? Things are just so good. I want to tell you what's going on in my life, and I want to bring you into what's going on in my life. No, they never do. They just take better selfies. Look, we're about to get divorced. <laughs> the better the selfie, the worse the life. And so we, we need to, as ministers, watch for these moments. But maybe you're at the end of yourself. Maybe there's things in your life that are overwhelming you. Good. God does give you more than you can handle. Right? Why? So he can handle it. If, if, if you could handle every problem in your life, you wouldn't need God. What's going on really with Israel was their false sense of pride and invincibility. They had the false religion, right? They, just, they had everything they thought they needed to be protected. And what God's really doing with Israel is breaking their self-sufficiency, their self-reliance. Psalm 50, if you're taking notes, says, Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. That's a good psalm to remember. If you're ever in a day of trouble, just call. I'm from the old days. My mom would always encourage me when I left the house to save a dime. Remember, remember us old-timers? We had what was called payphones. Remember those? Mom would put a dime in your shoe or in your wallet in case you're in trouble. you got to call mom, right? We didn't have cell phones, right? Or we had hillbilly phone, right? You just scream outside your door. That's how my uncle would get us back to the house, you know. He would, he would holler at once. You got one call from him. And if you're not home, that was, that was the end of the night for you. Verse 5. Then the Lord God, Israel, or excuse me, Lord gave Israel a deliverer. So that they escaped from under the hands of the Syrians, and the children of Israel dwelt in their tents as before. They were intense. Nevertheless, oh boy, here we go. They did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, who had made Israel sin, but walked in them, and the wooden image also remained in Samaria. What's the proverb? As a dog returns to its vomit. Right? Anyone here have dogs that like to eat a certain treat? <laughs> returns to their vomit, so is a fool to their own folly. 
Why did they return back to their sins? Because they lacked godly sorrow. They only repented because they suffered, not because they sinned against God. We know the verse, 2 Corinthians 7.10, says, For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world does what? It produces death, right? They only repented because of the pain and suffering, rather than the fact that they were breaking God's heart here. Verse 7, For he left of the army of Jehoaz only 50, 50 horsemen, 10 chariots, and 10,000 foot soldiers, for the king of Syria had destroyed them and made them like the dust at threshing. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoaz, all that he did and his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jehoaz rested with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria. Then Joash, his son, reigned in his place. Now one thing that the Holy Spirit's leaving us note here is God de destroyed their army. Why? That's where their confidence was, right? Remember what David read. He says, I'm not going to trust in my sword and my armor, you know? He knew that it was God who kept Jerusalem. He knew it was God who kept him. It wasn't his strength. It wasn't his self-reliance. And so uh, uh, the strength of a nation is never, never measured by its military, is it? It's measured by what? Their relationship to God. When you study how America overcame the British... In, in the Revolutionary War, is it because we had a better army and navy and, and soldiers? I mean, you study some of those battles, and it was by the grace of God. Those were God-fearing men to some degree, more so than you find now. I mean, look at our armed services now and how technologically advanced. When was the last victory for the American army? Probably World War II. You know, we've been a laughingstock despite all of our technological advances, right? It's because we've departed from the fear of God. That World War II generation, it was a God-fearing generation. I mean, they say America was 65% born again at that time. But it didn't translate. They didn't really pass it on to their kids. And so God cannot let us have a false confidence in external validation like that, you know. Civil War, what did they say? Trust in the Lord, but keep your, keep your bullets dry. You know, <laughs> you, you do want to, you know, be practical, but if, if the, uh, the nation's ungodly, what, what can you do to stand? Verse 9, so Jehoaz rested with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria. Then Joash, his son, reigned in his place. In the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Jehoash, the son of Jehoaz, got all that, became king over Israel and Samaria and reigned 16 years. Oh, boy. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, who made Israel sin but walked in them. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoash, all that he did in his might, with which he fought against Amaiah, Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Joash rested with his fathers. Then Jer Jeroboam sat on his throne, and Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. What does history tell us that we don't learn from history? Okay, you can make your own mistakes, or you can make you can you can learn from others and not make them again. But you know, you can see. There's kind of like a, a family family trend here. We were talking last night. You know, you can teach your kids to eat, but they're going to always eat like you. You know, they're not going to retain the table manners you don't have. You know, so it didn't translate to this generation. But we're going to see that God grants mercy, grace, and deliverance based on what? The covenant he made with the nation of Israel, based on what he, he promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? It's fascinating when you study those covenants, right? Israel is still around today because of what God told Abraham, you know? He's keeping Israel. It's not that Israel has a great army. It's not that Israel has great defenses, a great location. I mean, it's to the contrary. Israel's the underdog 
country in the Middle East, if you think about it. Up until 10, 15 years ago, they had no natural resources like fuel or uh, fossil fuels or anything like that. It wasn't until recently they found it. And so it's been God who's been keeping them. So now we're going to turn to uh, Elisha here. Verse 14, Elisha had become sick with the illness of which he would die. Right now he's in his 80s. He's a man there's no recorded sin or evil in the Bible regarding him. Now, it's not saying he was sinless. It just says he was blameless. He was a, a man of strong moral character. But he still gets sick and dies, right? It's kind of an affront to the health and wealth and prosperity movement. You know, he didn't speak into existence. His, you know, he's going to die, you know? Here's the thing. We all expire, don't we? Every one of us will show up to our funeral on time, you know. Um, but it doesn't end there, does it? We know that, you know, to be absent in the flesh is to be present with the Lord. Unless you're an unbeliever, then you get the eternal flaming swirly. So Elijah's sick. And then Jehoash, the king of Israel, came to him and wept over his face and said, Oh, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. What's that got to do with anything? Well, the army's, you know, it's obviously the army's fault. They've got a bigger army. We've got a small army. You know, we don't have enough. He's kind of putting a blame where the blame doesn't belong. You know what he should say? I'm a carnal, vomitous, fleshy bag of pus, and my country is in disarray because we're into idolatry. You know, I laugh at these national days of prayer that our country has and they broadcast on TV. Do you ever hear sin, repentance? It's always like, Lord, you know, 2 Corinthians, or no, 2 Chronicles 7-11, you know, we weep and fast and you're going to save your people and bring them into their land. It's like, well, study your Bible. He's talking about Israel and, and the Jews. He's not talking about America. Like, we're not the new Israel. And I think God's up there just going, hmm, okay. Yeah, you're putting on a good show. You know, you're squawking and making a lot of noise. But do you ever hear any of our religious leaders or civil leaders say, hey, maybe we need to change our behavior, right? Maybe we need to change our posture of our hearts regarding, you know, like look at California. How long has there been drought and fires? They're like 10 years into it. And they're just like, hmm, huh. oh, well. Whoop de doo. You look at the streets of San Francisco, you look at Portland, and everyone's like, oh, we have a homeless problem. No, you have a sin problem. You know, this is just evidence of it. You know? But he goes to Elisha. So there's some faith there, right? He finds his point of contact. This is kudos, right? You need that one person in your life. You know, you may not trust your faith walk or even have any faith walk, but you gotta find the guy who's got one better than yours. And and so he goes to Elisha. And by the way, Elisha has more recorded miracles than any other prophet in the Bible. And the only one who has more is Christ himself. So this guy's got game. We have Steve McQueen's documentary. You guys, some of you old guys remember Steve McQueen? Oh, those are good movies. You know how he got saved? Uh, he's taking pilot lessons late in life. And the guy's a believer. You know, and Steve, he's been through the Marines, he's been an actor, he's been rich, and he's just hollow in his life. And so, and he was a tough guy. He ain't going to tell me about Jesus. Well, this pilot, his instructor, led him to the Lord. But the best part of the story is he goes to Mexico to get some treatments on his cancer. And they're like, you're done, dude. So, you know who Hollywood sent to him? Billy Graham. Okay? Like, Hollywood is very ungodly, but they kept Billy Graham on retainer. So as all these celebrities have died during Billy Graham's ministry, they always knew who to go to. And it was Billy Graham. And so he gave, Billy Graham gave his Bible to Steve McQueen on his deathbed. Right? We'll see Steve again in eternity. But Greg Laurie ended up with that. He's got it like under a glass case, like Billy Graham's Bible. Could you imagine? Like if he had Elijah's scroll or his robe, you know, you're just like, oh, we're not worthy. But like, 
I've gotten a chance to meet some of my heroes of the faith. You know, some were obscure to most of the general public. But, like, I've met Chuck Smith. You know, I have a selfie with him. You know, he's in his little sparkly red golf cart going through the Bible college campus. Hey, Chuck, can I get a picture? Oh, yeah. You know, he knew who all of us were. But it's just like I posted every year, like, look me, I'm with Chuck Smith. You know, it's, you know, it's just great to have those, those people. But, uh, so Elijah, and, and I like Elijah. He doesn't waste words, does he? He always, remember he told the one guy, he says, hey, this is what you just need to do. I'm not even going to talk to you face to face. He sent a message and, and he got all mad. Why don't you talk to me? I'm Mr. Important. He's like, just do what I say. So here's what Elijah says. He says, take a bow and some arrows. So he took himself a bow and some arrows. a boy, simple obedience. Then he said to the king of Israel, put your hand on the bow. Oh, great. Put your, put your right foot in, put your right foot up. So he put his hand on it, and Elisha put his hands in the king's hand. And he said, open the east window. And he opened it. Then he said, shoot. And he shot. Now notice this. This is a great pattern. This is what we call progressive revelation. He didn't say, all right, here's the plan. This is how God's going to deliver. I want you to go, and you're going to do all this, and blah, 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 blah. Because you know what would happen if he gave us the whole plan? What would we do? Mess it up, right? Has anyone taken your children on an airplane? Do you ever give them the ticket like two weeks in advance? No, no, you know it's, you know. So oftentimes, as you and I are struggling to find home, to find our purpose in life, to find our ministry, to find God's provision in our life, he needs to cut your steak into little tiny chewy pieces, right? He's got to give you one bit at a time so that you check your obedience, right? Faithful in the little things. And so he just progressively says, this is what we're going to do. He didn't give him the whole plan. And so he shoots the arrow and he said, the arrow of the Lord's deliverance in the arrow of deliverance from Syria, for you must strike the Syrians at Aphek till you have destroyed them. Then he said, take the arrows. So he took them, and he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground. So he struck three times and stopped. And the man of God was angry with him, and he said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck Syria till you have destroyed it. But now you will strike Syria only three times. Now, what's going on here? With the arrows and the flinging them out the window. In this culture, in this time, firing arrows into enemy territory was a declaration of war. It's like in the UP. If you get your snow into your neighbor's snow, you're going to lose a friend. You are going to be at war for the next 20 years, right? You know, your snow blew into my yard. You ever have that discussion yet? Right? Isn't that crazy? It's great. Sometimes I do on purpose. Like, what are you going to do? You know, what are you going to I put my snow in your yard. And they're like, we're done. So there's a declaration of war. But then there's this question here. Why did Joash only fire three arrows? You know what he did? He tied hand, God's hands with what's called a scarcity mentality. He limited God's hand to provide. Okay? You remember what God told Joshua? He says, Wherever you put your foot down in the promised land, I will give to you. What did Joshua have to do? Put his foot down, right? In a sense, we call he left money on the table. We do this, right? How much of the scriptures or how much of God's blessing do you and I want from God? Well, as much as we can. Well, how do you obtain it? Through obedience. Well, how do you know how to be obedient? Read your Bible. A lot of Christians aren't blessed because they don't know the word. They don't see any value in it, right? They think it's hard. I don't understand it. Or they really don't think God is going to provide. Like we have this idea sometimes that God is broke or he doesn't have the capability to provide for us because he's limited by our personal resources. But that's not true, right? The pithy saying is what? Where God guides, God provides. And so God wants to do a complete and utter desolation of Syria, but Joash limited it. And we're going to talk more about that. So, Because he had a scarcity mentality. 
You know, often God will call us to do something hard. And the first thing I like to bellyache about is I'm broke. We can't do it. We can't afford it. Well, right. You know, I have to remember God loves to bless us. Think of, okay, parents, uh, you have children. Do you want to bless your kids? Absolutely. And then as they grow and they, they develop themselves and you see their personalities and you see their interests, you tend to get behind those interests that are productive and are, are you know, or you share a same heart with, right? Where you want to bring them into your interests and like, they're like, hey, dad, I want to do this. And you're like, all right, let's go build a go-kart. Or, hey, dad, can I have some Tannerite? No. You are not ready for Tannerite, right? Hillbilly Dynamite. Some of you guys know what that is. But God wants to bless, just like you and I want to bless. I mean, if you, we had a celebration of you know, child idolatry on Friday, right? Princess Nadia. And we just lavish on her, you know, just because we want more toys to pick up that night, you know. It's not for any other reason than, oh, we're going to keep eating birthday cake for three days and pick up toys now. Like, she's not really playing with any of her toys. You know, she's open them. That's the best part is opening the gift. And, and so, but we have to think like that in our standing with God as, as we're children of God, as we're born again. You got to remember, God wants to give. God wants to bless. God wants to prosper. And not for you, right? He's not giving you resources just so you can have a bigger car, bigger garage, bigger mansion. It's for what? To bless others. He wants to create a loving conduit for his resources to meet human need. Right? And so he's being a king, needs to think of the people he's called to protect and defend. And he just went about it in a very lackadaisical manner. Like, oh, okay. He did the bare minimum. You know, what do they call that? Um, quiet quitting? Isn't that the new trend right now? Quiet quitting? where you only do what's required of you at church, or not church, but at, but at, at work. In all reality, you're just doing what they're required of you. Like, who's going to go above and beyond for minimum wage, you know? <laughs> well, pay me more. So ask yourself, are you limiting God's ability to bless and prosper you because you don't think God can do it or he won't do it? Like, he's just moving the boundary line? Like, oh, close enough. Oh, good enough. Well, I even think of, you know, just, just a few short verses behind. Remember, Elijah was telling, he says, look, you need to dig ditches. Remember, there was a drought. He says, make this valley full of ditches. For thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind, nor shall you see rain, yet the valley shall be filled with water so that you, your cattle, and your animals may drink. And he goes on to say, is this a simple matter in the sight of the Lord? He will also deliver the Moabites in your hand. So whatever financial limitation you may be experiencing, or maybe there's a sin in your life, or maybe there's something that you just realize you just need to grow into and progress, or whatever your, your thing is. Is this a simple matter in the sight of the Lord? Think about it. He created the world in six days. You know what my, my question is? Why did he take so long? Think about it. You know, as the eggheads argue, is it a young earth and an old earth? It's like, it's God. He, can, he could have went, Thanos snapped that thing, right? <laughs> it's funny how the world will create superheroes that almost exceed what we've limited God in his ability to do. You look at like Santa Claus. You look at these superhero Marvel movies. They're all kind of like us deifying something we want God to be. But we won't let God be it, so we got to create superheroes. Like Superman, two Jewish comic book authors said, hey, let's use Jesus Christ as our template to give to our audience, you know, because he was 33 years old, you know, he had divine parents, you know, all this stuff. You're like, hmm, where did we see all this before, you know? And it's, it's like we always settle for what God wants to be because, you know, it's, it's by faith you receive that. He wants to bless. He wants to bless abundantly. So pray big. I, I'll give you a, a story. When um, we bought our house, we had some things we needed to fix, right? And uh, I made a list, and the money showed up. And 
I had to buy all new windows and things like that. And then I had some other issues that I wanted to get to. And I kind of hit a bit of a limitation there. I'm like, man, I, my budget for all these projects is kind of we're at there. And you know what the Lord told me? He says, you know what you did? You prayed too small. Because we had some real issues. Like the, like the, when we walked into the house, a pastor called me up. He says, hey, we hear you're adopting. We're going to pay for one of your room remodels. Cut us a check. Then, then the next summer, we replaced all the windows, you know. But then I'm like, oh, I should do this, should that. And, and the Lord's just like, why didn't you pray for it? You have not. Why? Because you ask not. Right? And I'm not saying make God a magic genie, but remember, he's a good father who likes to provide for his kids. So why was Elisha so mad? Why? why he wanted him to fire five to six shots. So why didn't he fire the five or six shots? I think it's because of these reasons. You can come up with your own reasons, but this is what I'm going to draw my conclusions from. Number one, he did not possess any boldness. Remember, he's ungodly. Right? He lacked sanctified boldness. He didn't have any confidence in God. You ever find yourself in that? Oh, God's not going to do this. Maybe you've not let God ever do something for you. You thought you had to be self-sufficient. You say things, no one's ever given me money or no one's ever given me a thing. I'm self-made. Oh, wait till the piano falls on that excuse. He didn't have any confidence in God. He never trusted God because he's never given an opportunity for God to work. You know, so let's compare to David. Remember, David took out Goliath. That wasn't his first rodeo, was it? David had to go out and tend his father's sheep. You know, he was kind of, he's probably the ugly kid. You know, he was the ruddy young lad. That wasn't a compliment, you know. He was like the, the little dirtball kid with no shoes. You, you see him. He's the kid on his bike going to the corner store buying more, you know, candy and pop. And he's got the Kool-Aid mustache and he smells bad because he's been fishing all day. This is David. He was the ugly kid. Yeah, go out and you tend the sheep. You know, we'll call you next week for dinner. But what did he do? He fought off wild animals. He saw God deliver him, and he, he had what? He had a slingshot. But he knew it wasn't his, his might. It was his confidence in God. So he did not possess any boldness. Second, he was an excuse maker. He excused himself and blamed others. So do you have reasons or excuses that God can't use you? Are you waiting for other people to be obedient so then you can start being obedient? That's a good one, isn't it? When you start blaming everyone else for why you can't walk in a sanctified manner or, or, or walk with Jesus. It's that church's fault. It's that group's fault. It's that Bible translation's fault. You know, it's, you know, whatever it may be. We start to blame and excuse everything. The other thing... He placed little or no value on menial tasks. He just wanted to do the big things. That's kind of the mentality where he treated little tasks in a little way, thus limiting God in his littleness. Ask yourself this question. Is there such a thing as a menial task for God? Do you think he knows just looking practically in our church, what, what needs to be cleaned, what needs to be repaired, what needs to be attended to, you know, he, he's aware of that. And sometimes you'll find he's pricking your heart. Like if you walk into the room and the first thing you see that you get critical of, oh, the paint job's shoddy, oh, the walls need to be repaired, oh, the ceiling tiles are leaking, oh, we don't have matching chairs, we don't, who didn't vacuum today, oh, who didn't do the dishes? You're, you're seeing the need. Though often we feel it's beneath us, right? It's a menial task. I don't have time. I'm busy doing the important things for Jesus. Well, we know if you're faithful in the little things, you'll be faithful in the big things. Ask yourself, who are you serving in those, those menial tasks? Right? One pastor wrote, he said, the problem he faced in his ministry, he'd get to church Sunday early, and he'd go out and pick all the cigarette butts up, and he started to grumble. Silly habit, these smokers are just filthy. And, and the Holy Spirit just tapped him on the heart and says, Who are you serving? It's not about us, is it? It's important to God. Think of that. Every little thing is important to God. 
right? He's the God of the small things. You you think of in 1 Kings, remember with Elijah? God said to Elijah, he says, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake, and after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire, a still small voice. We're always waiting for God to shout an audible or to work. We're like, we can't, we can't bless this community. We can't be effective in ministry because we don't have enough people. We don't have enough money. Well, we can start now and do those little things. Is God the God of small things? In Zechariah, it says, For who has despised the day of the small things? Right? Small things matter to God. It isn't the size of the task. It's God tests us. If you're not going to do the little things, he's not going to call on you to do the big things. I know senior pastors that were hired on as part-time janitors. Well, one guy, Rich Chafin, you can follow his stuff online. He got hired, came out of Bible college, which wasn't Calvary Chapel related. He came on as the janitor. He wasn't even an assisting pastor. But the assisting pastors always tended to be out, and so the secretary would forward the phone calls to his office. She's like, no one's here to take phone calls. Rich, can you do it? And he just kind of faked it till he made it kind of deal. And next thing you know, you know, he's planting churches, he's doing ministry. And, you know, and his frustration was they planted eight churches in, in Africa, spent thousands. But in Africa to build a church, it's pennies on the dollar. And then it was time for them to go and build one in their community. In California, real estate's really expensive. But the Lord honored and blessed it. I mean, he planted eight churches, so he knew that he had a plan. And so God developed him through all that littleness. Right? Sometimes you just got to step out. You just got to do those little tiny things. Faithful with little, you'll be faithful with much. Or ever tell yourself, I'm not going to start saving money until I'm a millionaire? <laughs> You can't save 20 bucks. You can't save 20,000. So that was his shortcomings. He just put no value on menial tasks. He made excuses, blamed everyone else, dismissed himself. He had no boldness or confidence in God. Verse 20, then Elisha died and they buried him. And the raiding bands from Moab invaded the land in the spring of the year. So it was, as they were burying a man, they suddenly they spied a band of raiders, and they put the man in the tomb of Elisha. And when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. There was a lot of soiled robes that morning. <laughs> Can you imagine? I mean, I want to see the gag reel in heaven, you know, when this goes down. Like, you know, you're like, why, you know? What? Well, what's going on here? There's no explanation for this. None of the commentators can agree. Everyone's tried to kind of jump the shark and kind of make it sound like it, what it wasn't. It had nothing to do with the man. It had nothing to do with Elisha. It had nothing to do with the friends who were burying him. It had nothing to do with the raiders. It simply was God was being glorified in his sovereignty. You know why God blesses? Because he likes to bless. Right? That's, that's the nature of God, to just do stuff and to bless, and that's just what he did here. Verse 22. And Hazael, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoaz. Verse 23. This is a good one. It says, But the Lord was gracious to them. He had compassion on them and regarded them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would not yet destroy them or cast them from his presence. You know, God's ways are not our ways, and our ways are not God's ways. You know, God, he may be angry at people's behavior, but he's not angry at people. We know because we have the benefit of the book, we have the benefit of looking hindsight to the cross, that Christ died and satisfied the wrath of God. He's not mad at anyone. You may be sitting there thinking, I'm a total dingus and God hates me because I didn't do this or I did that. God, God is very gracious. He, he has a lot of compassion on us. You know, if God was really mad at us, wouldn't he have just fried us? 
It's like, why, why didn't he send the lightning bolt? You know, I think of if I would have written the Bible, it would have been like, God created the heavens and earth, man blew it, and then God destroyed the heavens and the earth. The end. I would have saved a lot of trees, right? This whole mess of history. But no, we see God is very long-suffering, right? Compassionate. He understands our weakness, Jesus is what? The great high priest who sympathizes with our failings and our weaknesses. He has compassion on us. He knows what he's working with. Right? You know why he works with us? Because that's all he has. You know, you look at the patriarchs. They weren't those, they weren't as great as we'd like to make them out to be. It's just that's who he had to work with. But he's doing it for his namesake. He wasn't going to destroy them or cast them from his presence. Now, we're going to see they're going to go into captivity. They'll never be completely destroyed. We're going to see when the Romans take over Israel, right, in AD 70, they're going to destroy the temple and put them in dispersion. But we saw what? The greatest miracle in our generation was what? May 14th, 1948, where God did what? He brought the nation of Israel back from absolute non-existence. Verse 24, now Haziel, king of Syria, died. Then Ben-Hadad, his son, reigned in his place. And Jehoash, the son of Jehoaz, recaptured from the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Haziel, the cities which he had taken out of the hands of Jehoaz, his father, by war. Three times Joash defeated him and recaptured the cities of Israel. And just like God said. He defeated Syria three times. But you know what? It could have been more. He left money on the table, as we call it. Could have been five to six times. He could have wiped Syria off the map. Understand this, Christian. God's desire to bless and to deliver are limitless. Because of his nature. His nature is to bless and deliver. Let's, let's finish on one New Testament reference. Matthew 9. You want to go underline this in the person's Bible next to you so they don't forget Highlight it, especially if it's an expensive Bible. Matthew 9, 27. Story of two blind men. It says, when Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out and saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. And when he had come into the house, the blind men came to him. And Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? Underline that portion. Do you believe that I am able to do this? There's a great worship song. It's called, He is Able. It's not about his brother Cain. He is able. Sorry. Um, so real quick, I just noticed something. How do blind men follow a guy and then figure out where he is in the house? Scent? Smell like Jesus? Oh, he smells like falafels. <laughs> they said to him, yes, Lord. Notice the gentleman nature of Jesus. He never forces himself on people, does he? He asks them, do you think I can do this? Ask yourself, do you think God can do whatever he needs to do in your life and through you and whatever obstacle did God create a rock so big in your life he can't move it? <laughs> then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, let it be to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them. Ooh, he raised his voice. That's not very gentle. He, he would not be a good pastor in the Midwest. He was stern. He warned them, saying, See that no one knows it. But when they all had departed, they spread the news about him in all that country. <laughs> you know, there's a difference in the scriptures. There is unbelief and there's disbelief. What's the difference? There's, there's a, a portion where our belief isn't made complete because we haven't yet seen it or experienced it. Where it's a healthy skepticism. That's one part of it. But when it comes to just flat out going, I won't believe it, that's a whole nother matter, 
right? You've hardened your heart. You've put God in a box. You think, well, he can't, just won't or can't or whatever. He's, and God goes, okay, you want to set a boundary? Okay. Remember, he couldn't do miracles in his own hometown, right? Prophet was without honor in his own hometown. They, they limited his ability. And so it's not that God isn't all powerful or omniscient. It's just he's respecter of people in that regard. I think a lot of Christians miss out because they flat out don't want to believe God will do that or can do that. Or let's just be real. We're, we're just like King Joash where we're lazy. We don't like menial tasks. We don't have any regard for the things God regards. And so God just says, all right, very good. So where are you at in all this? God is a blesser. He's gracious. What does grace mean? Getting what you don't deserve. Have you ever gone to, I'll use an example. Um, we used to get together at our coffee house at church, and we, we'd all get takeout after church. And one of the brothers was kind of like my dog. I have an invisible dog throughout the day, but the minute you open the cheese wrapper, she shows up. Anyone have a dog like that? So whenever food showed up, this brother would just want a fellowship with you. And he'd sit there. You're going to eat that? You're going to eat that? And uh, another brother had just this bucket of food. You could probably tell which brother it may have been. And he eats till he's satisfied. And then that brother was impatient. He gets up and he leaves. And so I sit in his chair. I'm like, hey, bro, what's up? And he's like, hey, you want this? I'm like, yeah, it's barbecue. You know, it's... You know, like Chicago beefs. I mean, just a pile of food. And he's like, yeah, I'm done. You want the rest? And I felt like the guy who went to the casino. You ever, in your past life, right? Hopefully not now as Christian. You ever go to the casino and there's the guy who's just feeding the beast and he walks away skunked and you go in there and you put a quarter and you just pull down the one-armed bandit and you win, you know, like five grand in quarters? That's the way I felt. Like I just won the lottery that day just because the guy who was eating just said, here, I just want to give this to you. Not because he liked me more than the other brother. It's just the other brother missed out because he got up and left. It's great. You know, it's just one of those great object lessons. And so you want to be under the spot where the glory comes out. You just want to be in, in a place of obedience because that's where God blesses. You know, challenge your faith. Challenge, you know, just step out in the areas God's just saying, hey, you're it. But let him bless you. So let's pray.